Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here again. It's been about two years since I had the privilege of preaching and worshiping with you all. I know that my son Phil's been holding down the fort to while we've been away. And again, it's just a delight to uh, make reacquaintances with a number of you all. On the back page of your bulletin is our scripture. And I'll not be reading all of it uh, because it's verses 1 through 23 of Mark 7. But we're going to be focusing this morning on verses 14 uh, through 23. And let me go ahead and read that. Mark writes, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that we might indeed have ears to hear and Lord, that we would learn and apply it to our lives that you'd be honored and glorified. And again, we thank you for the work of Christ in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this section here deals with traditions and commandments. And it really sets a battle between the Pharisees and the scribes and Jesus and his disciples. Early on, beginning of uh, chapter 7, we see that the Pharisees and the scribes, they came from Jerusalem because they wanted to challenge Jesus. Verse 2 and verse 5 really is one verse. And verses 3 and 4 is an explanation of the traditions that the elders had. And this is uh, what it says in verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. And then it picks up at verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? They were asking questions about the disciples, but in reality, they were challenging Jesus here, saying, Why don't you follow the traditions of the elders? And while we see this first uh, portion here, we're talking about tradition. What are traditions and rituals? One definition of a ritual is a religious or solemn ceremony consisting of a series of actions performed according to a prescribed order. Now, having been in the military wearing a uniform for 39 years, I understand somewhat of traditions and rituals in the military. Both as a pilot and as a chaplain, we have a retirement ceremony, we have changes command ceremonies, we have commissioning ceremonies, all sorts of things. And then also we talk about traditions. Almost everybody has traditions. A tradition is defined as a transmission of customs or beliefs from generation to generation or the fact being passed on in this way. There may be family traditions, church traditions, national traditions, July 4th, 
I know that when I was in high school and college, I rode crew. We had the tradition of throwing the coxswain into the water if you won the race. If you lost the race, you had to give up your racing jersey to, to the winner. Or when I was at the Naval Academy, plebe year, we had what we called reef points. We had to memorize all these things. This was part of the tradition. And if they asked you, how's the cow, you had a certain thing that you're supposed to say. Or what's up? And if you say what's up, Fidel is up on the bayonet belt, sir, because we had a bayonet belt, fidelity was on top. Or if they said, why didn't you say sir? That was all, I can still memorize it after all these 40-some years. Uh, or the Herndon Monument, they just celebrated this recently, where this marks the end of plebe year. He had this long monument, they grease it down, and the plebes are supposed to put a cap on top of the monument. Now, because it's greased down, it makes it very difficult. But again, these are some of the traditions that they had. Or in flight school, when you soloed, they would cut your tie in half. Not sure why, but that was one of the traditions. Um, and sometimes you have family traditions. I know in ours, we bake a birthday cake for Jesus and we celebrate it on Christmas Eve after the Christmas Eve service because we want to remind our kids that Christmas is not just about getting gifts. We want to remind them about Jesus. And sometimes in church we have, you've heard this, some very fundamental traditions. Don't dance, drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Now, Here's the principle I want us to think about this morning. Rituals and traditions, when elevated above God's word, do not equal righteousness. Thoughts which come from the heart are the parents of deeds, words, and attitudes. And as we think through this, does your inner life match your outer life? What do other people see? Is your faith ritual or reality? And we'll look at where does true defilement come. Again, the Pharisees, as they challenged Jesus, said, why don't your disciples, why don't you follow the tradition of the elders? You're defiling yourselves. This is what they were saying. And that's what we'll look at. So we looked at the first part that set it up, verses, um, again, 1 through 6. Jesus responds in verse 6. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy to you hypocrites? He responds with Scripture. And that's a great, a great way for us to respond when we are challenged. What do the Scriptures say? When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he responded with Scripture. And he says, this people from Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart, and we'll look at this later, is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. And then he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of men. He then, in verses um, uh, 9-13, through 13, gives an example. And again, he challenges the Pharisees. These were the religious leaders. They were supposed to know what the word of God said, and they were to teach the people. And he challenges them with a bit of irony and sarcasm says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions, verse 9. And he goes back to the Old Testament, to the words of Moses, and he goes back to the commandment, honor your father and mother. And then he says, by your traditions, you have allowed people not to honor that, not to obey that. Because of your traditions. And he goes on in verse 13. You have thus made void the word of God by, and he's very emphatic, your tradition that you have handed down. 
And that sets the stage for our passage where Jesus teaches on true defilement. Again, verse 5 was the question from the Pharisees, why do your disciples not wash? Why do they defile themselves by not walking according to the tradition of the elders? Jesus addressed them in verse 6, but now he addresses them as he teaches on true defilement. He, he asks the crowd, and he addresses the entire crowd publicly. And so we'll look at Jesus publicly addresses the crowd. He'll address his disciples privately, and then he expounds on his teaching. And so in verse 14, he calls the people to himself and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. This is a command to hear or to heed and to understand. It indicates that what follows has revelatory significance and demands careful attention. It's like in the olden days where you'd have the town crier and he wants to make an announcement. He goes out with this bell and he's going, Hear ye, hear ye. Jesus says, Listen, this is important. And he shares with them something that is in contrast, contrary to what the religious leaders were saying. And, he said, and this is his teaching, which is again in response to the Pharisees. Verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. Now he doesn't go into great detail at this, uh, at this particular point. And the first part the people could understand. He does not elaborate as he does. Because after he gives that public proclamation, that public teaching, then the scriptures say that he went into a house and he's with the disciples and they say, Jesus, what did you mean? Can you please explain that parable? Now, why didn't they understand? Jesus says, hear and understand. And that's applicable to the disciples. It is applicable to us today. We need to hear and understand. But we have a problem. Because our nature is one of sin, and we are victims of the fall, recipients of the fall back in Genesis, we cannot understand unless the Lord works in our heart. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so we have a darkness over our eyes. We also have an enemy. He seeks to blind us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that the God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Oh, but praise the Lord that the Lord is more powerful than the enemy. And he can enlighten our hearts. Because unless we do so, we cannot understand. J.C. Ryle, who was a 19th century English evangelical Anglican, yes, there are conservative evangelical Episcopals and Anglicans, says this. He says, The corruption of human nature is a universal disease affecting not only man's heart, will, and conscience, but his mind, memory, and understanding. And he goes on to say, as he, as he comments on this passage, Man will see no meaning in the clearest statements of evangelical doctrine. They can't understand. I look back to my own life. When I was in the Episcopal Church, I was an acolyte. I knew the ritual. I knew what the Word says. I had memorized the Nicene Creed. But my heart was darkened. I did not understand. I did not understand the clear statements of evangelical doctrine. 
And we see that unfortunately for many today. Those who are sitting in church pews, they don't understand the meaning. And he goes on. He says, we must pray daily for the teaching of the Holy Ghost if we would make progress in the knowledge of divine things. And the blessing that we have is in Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who can help open our hearts, open our eyes that we can understand these things. And so do we really hear, do we really understand? Or are we, and I'm guilty of this, okay, we'll tell you, of men who say, Yes, dear, as they listen to their wives, maybe one eye on the TV, one eye on the wife, probably more on the TV. Do we really hear and understand as going one ear and out the other? Do we really listen and understand to what the Lord says? Jesus continues in his teaching here because we do want to hear what he has to say. Because many religious leaders today are essentially saying the same things as the scribes and Pharisees. They have erected their own traditions that make void the word of God. And so what does the word of God say? And so we have his teaching in verse 15. Again, as I mentioned, he says, it's not what goes into a person that defiles you. It's what comes out. That, again, his public answer. And so he explains to his disciples privately, beginning in verse 17. They ask him to explain, well, what did you mean? And he reproaches them for their lack of understanding. He reproaches them for their mental dullness. This goes back to the end of Mark 6 and again into Mark 8, where he chastises them because their hearts were hardened. It says that in um, Matthew 6.52. And then in 8.17 he says, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you do not hear? That was the problem that he challenged them right there. They did not understand. And what we see at this point, despite their privileged relationship with Jesus, they were fundamentally no different from the crowd and to some extent from the scribes and Pharisees. But the good news is that the Lord worked in their heart. And they did understand. And many gave their lives for the gospel, for the sake of Jesus Christ. He reiterates his teaching, but he goes into more detail at this particular point. And as he talks about this, again, he says um, in verse 18, he challenged him, are you without understanding? And then he goes on, it's not what goes into a person that defiles him since it enters not his heart but his stomach. This is an elaboration. And actually the Greek says it then is eliminated into the toilet or to the latrine. Somewhat graphic language there. But then he talks about the heart as he goes on. And at that point, by the way, he declared all foods clean. And he says it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. That's essentially what he told the crowd. But then he goes on. For from within... That is from the heart. That is what defiles. Food and heart have nothing to do with each other. That's what the Pharisees and scribes did not understand with their own tradition that they had ma maintained. And they started off right. They looked at what was the teaching for the priests, for the Levites. But then they expanded that because the disciples were not violating the law of God by not washing their hands in a ritual. Moral purity does not depend upon what man washes, touches, or eats 
as the Pharisees and the scribes as they thought. They were confusing ritual purity with true or moral purity. And if we're not careful, we can do the same. And this is, again, what many churches are guilty of. What I was guilty of when I was an acolyte, went to church every Sunday, helps the pastor serve communion. There's a difference when I call churchianity, going to church and going through the motions, and Christianity, which is a vibrant, living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you had a lot of people, and again, I was one of them sitting in the pew thinking I was a believer because I did certain things. But I had not believed on Christ. I had not trusted Him alone for salvation. And so my heart was hardened. My heart was dark. And that's what Jesus warns about. He talks about true defilement. It's not, again, what you touch or don't touch. It is what is in your heart. And the ultimate seed of purity and defilement before the God is the heart. Again, J.C. Ryle states this at this point. The heart is the chief source of defilement and impurity in God's sight. Well, what do we know about the heart? The prophet Jeremiah has a great verse. I suspect most of you know what this verse is. Now, when I was a chaplain on a ship, sometimes I would only have two or three people there on weekends during duty section when we were in port. And I would ask questions. I won't ask you the questions, but I suspect most of you have heard Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If you've heard that before, you can shake your head. Yes, a lot of you are shaking your head. Most of us, though, stop right there. Don't look at the next verse, which is very sobering, which says this. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That is a sobering thought. The Lord says he searches the heart and tests the mind. Again, that heart is that inner part of us that makes us us. It's the center of one's being, including mind, emotions, and will. And the Lord searches and tests both things and will give us what we deserve is what the Scripture says. And if our heart is deceitful, that is a scary thought. We do have a problem. We see this searching and testing as is exemplified in New Testament, I think in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. It talks about a downward spiral. Now most of us know that a downward spiral is not a good thing. What is a uh, downward spiral? The definition is a situation in which something continuously decreases or gets worse. It's often associated with depression. However, there's a downward spiral to depravity. There's a downward spiral to defilement. And we see this in, again, Romans 1. Paul challenges his readers. And he says, The root sin is idolatry, that is worshiping other gods, or placing yourself in the place of God, and not honoring God. It's a failure to value God and to honor Him above all things. And he says in verse 21, Because they are worshiping creation instead of the Creator, because they were not honoring God, he says this leads to futile thinking and a darkened heart. Again, the mind and the heart 
Paul is talking about. And we see this downward spiral three times. Paul uses the term, God gave them up. This is a warning for the people in Paul's day. It is a warning that is relevant to today. Listen to what he says in verse um, 24 is the first time he says this. And it's bracketed because the people are worshiping creation. They're worshiping man. They're worshiping not the creator. And he says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies. And then he goes on right after that. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature the, uh, the creature instead of the creator. He then follows on with the next downward spiral. The next God gave them up. And he says, for this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Downward spiral. And then he goes on in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God and honor Him, here's the third downward spiral of depravity. God gave them up to a debased mind and sin to do what ought not to be done. And Paul here lays out a whole bunch of bad things, of wickedness. But listen to what he says as he closes out this passage. He says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Does that sound familiar today with what much of society is teaching? With what much of society is proposing? As Christians are in fact um, mocked for what they believe? What we see here is again the downward spiral hearts, minds, and then actions. And this is consistent with the teaching of Jesus. Again, we'll go to the final portion of verses 20 through 23. This is where Jesus amplifies his teaching as he talks about this. As he's talking again with his disciples, he says, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Then he amplifies, for from within, out of the heart. Again, that's where this true defilement comes. Again, the heart is mainly the center and source of the whole inner life. And the things that Jesus mentions, the source of this is our own dark heart. He starts off with evil thoughts. That's a general category that stands behind the evil actions of men. And here's the danger as we look at this list. A lot of times we'll kind of tune out and say, well, I don't do that. I don't, I'm not guilty of that. This doesn't really apply to me. You know, maybe Joe sitting in the next pew, maybe he really needs to be listening to this. Or how about Mary? This doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. This applies to all of us. And we may not do very many of these things, but it's a warning for us to check our heart. So he starts off with evil thoughts as a general category. Uh, again, one lexicon says it's not merely evil thoughts, but evil devisings which issue in degraded acts and vices now mentioned. Again, very similar to Romans 1. 
And so Jesus breaks it down into two different categories. The first part are six evil acts. These are all in the plural in the Greek. Then he has six moral defects or vices. These are all singular in the Greek. And so he starts off. Sexual immorality. Again, it comes from the Greek word porneia. We are all familiar with that. Pornography comes from that. This is a broad term of sexual immorality. It covers a whole bunch of different uh, things. And it's generally of every kind of extramarital, unlawful, or unnatural sexual intercourse. He then goes to theft or stealing, which is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. He talks about murder or killing, which is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. He talks about adultery again, which is a more specific form of uh, sexual immorality. He talks about adultery, which is a violation of the Seventh Commandment. And again, one lexicon says this is an act of sexual intercourse with someone uh, that is not your own spouse. He then talks about coveting. That is the Tenth Commandment. And again, that's defined as uh, bad behavior, a disposition to have more than one share. can be defined as greed, covetousness, or avarice. And what we find is throughout Scripture, if you were to look at um, Ephesians 5, covetousness is linked with sexual immorality and idolatry. And by the way, what is idolatry? This was a sin of Egypt, which, or a sin of Israel coming from Egypt that they carried with them that led to their, to their exile. Idolatry is worshiping false gods. And that's what Paul was warning about in worshiping the, the creation in Romans 1. And so idolatry is linked in the Old Testament by the prophets. We see it in the New Testament. It's called spiritual adultery. And so covetousness is wanting what I want. It's the last commandment. And oftentimes it can be linked back to the first commandment of have no other gods. I want, therefore I will try to make the effort to have this, to have whatever it is. He then closes out with wickedness, which is defined as malicious acts. And it's only used in the moral and ethical sense in the New Testament. And it's of intentionally practice ill. And it can be defined as, or used as sometimes as evil, wickedness, or malice. Now a lot of people say, well, what does the Old Testament have to do with us? We are the New Testament. We don't have to worry about that. Here, as Jesus warns us, he uses four Old Testament commandments, which come from God's moral law. That still applies to us today. The ceremonial law does not. The civil law does not. But God's moral law has not changed. And God still holds us accountable. And Jesus warns us and says, these things come from the heart. These things defile us. And so six evil acts. He then goes on with six moral defects. Deceit. Actually, that word is used of bait in fishing. Hence, it has the idea of deceit, treachery, or fraud. Because that fish he seizes on that bait is a sure end for surprise when it uh, chomps down on the hook. Then talks about sensuality. Again, it's, that, uh, it's living without any moral restraint, sometimes called licentiousness, sensuality, or lustful indulgence. Envy. It's an idiom, and actually the Greek says evil eye. It has, again, the idea of a feeling of jealousy and resentment because of what someone else has 
or does. Slander. Generally harmful abuse of speech against someone's reputation. Pride. A state of ostentatious pride or arrogance bordering on insolence. Foolishness. Lack of sense. Again, not using one's capacity for understanding is to be foolish. Now, as I read this, I'm going, is this a description of today's politicians? It sure seems like it. And these are the people who represent us. But they are also represent us in our own fallenness, in our own sinfulness. And you listen to the politicians, they're oftentimes, I just have to turn off the TV. It is sickening what they say and what they stand for. On both sides. And yet Jesus says, this is natural. Why? Because it comes from a darkened heart. These are many of the things that Jesus lists here that are celebrated in society today. I guess it was probably within the last six months or so, our vice president was mocked on the view because of what they now call the Pence Rule. What's the Pence Rule? He doesn't go to dinner or to a meal or find himself alone with another woman unless his wife is around. And he was mocked for that. Then after the Me Too movement started coming up, people were saying, well, that's still too much, but that's not so much of a bad idea. And even today we see Christians in the church are mocked for believing in the sanctity of marriage between the man and a woman. There are those who believe in the sanctity of marriage, but not just between a man and a woman. Or the sanctity of what God has created, man, both female and male. I think Facebook has like 52 different categories of gender. This was a couple years ago. I don't know what they're up to now. I don't know how they do all that stuff. Again, I used to be a pilot. You know, it was very simple. Fast, slow with the throttle, left, right with the stick, you know, up or down. Keep it simple for me. Two seems fine for me, and that's what God has said. Very simple. I don't know how you come up with 52 variations of, of, of gender there. Um, but again, it goes back to the heart. How does Jesus summarize this? He summarizes it in verse 23. All these evil things come from within. And the parallel passage in Matthew 15, Jesus says, These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. These acts and dispositions are what defile a person, and they make them unfit to approach God. And this is what's scary. There are many of us who do these things, maybe one or two. We are unrepentant, and we think that because God is a God of love, and He is, don't get me wrong, He will just ignore that. They think of God as the cosmic Santa Claus who ignores everything. But by the way, Santa Claus did have a list, right? Didn't he check it? See, he's naughty and nice. See, Santa Claus had a list. So Santa Claus couldn't even make the grade with a lot of society today. Yeah. But it makes him unfit to approach God. And so as we look at our, as our own lives, and that's why, for example, in the reading it talked about the heart. We have the confession of sin. We confess our sins. And what does John say if we confess our sins in 1 John 1, 9? He is what? Faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That cleansing is the opposite of defilement. Defilement makes us filthy. But in Christ we are washed. We are cleansed. 
The source of the evil things is the heart which is an open rebellion to God. And what do many people say? Well, God doesn't really mean what He said in the Word. And it goes back, whether they wittingly or unwittingly, they repeat the lie of Satan in Genesis 3. Did God really say this? And you see it with gender. You see it with marriage. Oh, no, no. God doesn't mean that. Romans 1 is pretty clear. Other passages are pretty clear. But God doesn't really mean that. And then oftentimes you'll hear it this way. <laughs> My God would never do this. Would never do what? My God would never do what He says He's, he's going to do in Scripture. And I'm thinking, you're right. You have created your own idol. And guess what? I was guilty of that when I was an unbeliever. My God, I went to church every Sunday, but my God was better than a cosmic Santa Claus. I could do whatever I wanted. But the scriptures tell us what God is like, and that's what gives us hope. Again, I think back, and um, we go to a new covenant, and the past have been preaching through Galatians. But as we have this list, and there are lots of lists, and again, the danger is saying, well, I don't do all that stuff. But the idea is, if we practice them, this is the warning. Not because you do them, and you may do one or two of these things, that's not an excuse for sin. But what the Scriptures say, those who practice them, those who do those things, those where that is their way of life, that is the warning, because they have defiled themselves before God. And Paul writes in Galatians 5 as he talks about the works of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident. You'll hear some of these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. And it goes on with a long list. And it's not all of them because he says, and things like this. And then he goes on. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And as we talk with people who claim to be believers, that is scary. God says, if this is your conduct, your way of life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He warns the church in 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Corinthians 5, it deals with church discipline, and it lays out a series of things that Christians should not be doing because they were tolerating a man who's involved with sexual morality of incest with his stepmother. And so what does he say in, verse, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11? He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous man will not inherit the kingdom of God? Didn't we just hear that in Galatians? Once we pay attention, twice we, nearly, we really need to pay attention. He goes on, Do not be deceived. If we think that God gives us a pass and that we're not defiled, we are deceiving ourselves. And again, there are those who are in the church who claim to be believers who are deceiving themselves. He goes on, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, again, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, nor adulterers, we've heard these, these things, nor many practice homosexuality. By the way, Paul uses two words for homosexuality. The passive or the effeminate, and then the active male in this. Two different words for that. And then he um, goes on, nor these, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
and we're saying, this sounds so dark. Where is our hope? Our hope is found in the very next verse. 1 Corinthians 6.11. What does Paul write? And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is the hope that we have. And so as we talk with people, it says, well, I can't change. I was born that way. That's not what Paul says here. And it gives these people hope. Some of you were doing these things, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. This is the opposite of defilement. This is the cleansing of the defilement that our heart brings up that makes us unfit to approach God. And in Christ, we do have hope. Do you know Christ? I pray that you're not like me. When I was in high school, an acolyte in the church, going through the motions, thinking that I was a believer. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior, trusting Him alone for salvation? Not in your actions, not in your works. Because again, James says, we break the law in one point, we're what? Guilty of it all. And yet our hope is found in Jesus. We have the forgiveness of sins. If you are a believer and have been in sin, as I mentioned before, we need to confess our sins to the Lord. And again, the hope that we have is in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, that's reversing the effects of defilement. So as we are repentant, we can open up our hearts to the Lord and say, I have sinned. But we have confidence because of what Christ has done. Not because of what we have done. But what Christ has done, we can approach the throne of grace. And we can lift up our prayers. And we are a new person. Again, Paul says in Corinthians that we are a new creature because of what Christ has done. So, what are our takeaways from today? Here's just a couple. First of all, we need a new heart. Again, remember from uh, Jeremiah that the, heat, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We need a new heart. We cannot do it on our own. Alright? Then how does that come about? We need a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to cleanse us and give us a new heart. And we see the promise of this back in the Old Testament with the words of Ezekiel. He writes in Ezekiel 36, 25-27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness or defilement and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so we obey out of our love for Christ. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Just like little children. They seek to, hopefully, obey their parents out of love. Do they do it perfectly? No. But we have a Savior who kept the law perfectly. He did what we could not do. He kept God's law perfectly. So we need that relationship with Christ to cleanse us. And again, the hope that we have 
Paul writes in Titus 3.5, He saved us not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Again, that cleansing of Christ reverses defilement so we can approach God. We need to guard our hearts. It's not just passive. We need to guard our hearts. Again, Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. And the Psalms in Psalm 119, 9-11 says this, How can a young man or woman keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We need to memorize and meditate upon the Word of God. We need to internalize it in us. Lastly, we must be led and empowered by the Holy Spirit in our spiritual walk. Again, Galatians 5, in verses 16, 18, and 25, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In verse 18, he says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. We are under grace because Christ fulfilled the law. And in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step by the Spirit. We cannot do this on our own, but the hope we have is found in Jesus Christ. As we think through this, again, we look at our heart, and we can be thankful that in Christ, He has replaced it. He has taken off that hardened, dark heart and given us a new heart that allows us to come before the Lord, to have that loving relationship. We can move from churchianity, going to church and going through the motions, to Christianity, that vibrant living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we see all these different things of what we should not do, and sometimes we don't pay attention. Forgive us, Lord, when we ignore your word. Lord, I pray that those who don't know you come and know you as Lord and Savior, particularly as we prepare to take communion in a few moments. Lord, as we're reminded of what Christ has done for us, may you be glorified by the conduct of our lives and by our heart with you. In Jesus' name.